Welcome to United We Stand. I'm your host, Jim Feeney, and each week we provide you with hopefully half an hour or more of some insight to the world around us and how we make a stronger, more sustainable government. Today, I'm lucky to have two good friends of mine who uh, were also guests on the show at another point. And we had you, Dave. Were you on the show before? I don't think I've been on before, although I did, I did review the book. You did. That's right. Dave is uh, one of my book reviewers, and we thank him for that. But I did have George Bailey on. So now you guys will be kind of like the old Hannity and Calms. It's it's Bailey and Baggett, you know, (laughs) hopefully to have you regulars in the show because you're two really smart guys whose opinions I, I respect. And let's start with you, George Bailey. Why don't you give our listeners your quick bio? Yeah, thanks, Jim. Well, I, I live in uh, beautiful Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and uh, I'm uh, the director of a research institute called the Digital Supply Chain Institute out of New York. I uh, am also on the advisory board for Lockheed Martin. do a lot of work in their space business. They're a great company. And before that, I was the chief transformation officer for Sony based in Tokyo. And before that, I ran a bunch of businesses for IBM. The last one I ran was the uh, worldwide semiconductor business. So uh, I'm glad to be here. And Jim, you're, you're always entertaining. <laughs> Dave, give us your, your quick elevator pitch. Yeah, here's my short summary of my entire life so far. Uh, went to the MIT AI lab, uh, left with a master's and went to write video games, which is sort of like running away to join the circus, I guess. And uh, <laughs> out popped this game, Crash Bandicoot, was the, which was the Sony mascot game in the first mm-hmm. PlayStation era late nineties, sort of like their Mario. Uh, Then I co-founded a travel tech startup called ITA software with some other folks from the AI lab at MIT. And that we ultimately sold to Google. That was basically airfare search and we sold it to Google and now it's Google flights. So if you've ever used Google flights, that's, that's our stuff. And, uh, and now I'm working on Inky, which is a cybersecurity company and we use computer vision and other modern machine learning techniques to identify Phishing emails. So the constant barrage of emails you get that pretend to be mm-hmm. Microsoft or they pretend to be your CFO, we use machine learning to identify those and block them. So folks, we are well positioned today to get some amazing input from some smart folks who are plugged into some of the changes we want to talk about. So first order of business is stay at home work. Uh, I think COVID uh, has clearly showed us and exposed the potential operating efficiencies for companies uh, with distributed work. Things haven't completely fallen off of the, the tracks for a lot of companies, not all, but if you're in, in the sort of services business and the, you're used to operating in a, in a digital platform, work hasn't changed all that much. And we know that uh, there are a lot of big companies uh, rethinking what it means to have a big corporate headquarters with all sorts of employees crowded in, in this uh, sort of COVID world. So let me start with you, George. What else is going on that we should be aware of with this trend? What are you advising your customers? Because I know you have you know, global customers, big customers that have big headquarters and how to stay at home work, not just in the real estate, but in terms of uh, HR, employee interactions, what long-term productivity might look like. What are, your, what are your thoughts there? Well, the first thing to mention is that it's never going to go back to the old way. We are never, ever, ever going to have everybody going to the corporate office five days a week and interacting with each other. I mean, if, you're, if you have a non-customer-facing role, you are probably not going to spend five days a week in the office like you used to. Uh, and that has some profound implications on everything we do in business. But uh, and when I've talked to business leaders, they're saying anywhere from the most 50%, uh, the least about 10% will go back to their corporate headquarters. These are companies that have you know, big corporate headquarters on Park Avenue in New York. So this is a major, major change. And the reason they're doing it is because much to their surprise, when the whistle blew and everybody went home, they found that productivity actually got better. They found that there was so much lost time commuting to work, sitting around the water cooler, water cooler talking about things, uh, having long lunches. I mean, I, 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 there's a whole list of things that just went away. There are some other things that came up that weren't as good. Uh, for example, bringing new people on board is very difficult to make them part of the team. But once you're part of the team, working from home is not such a bad thing. Maybe not five days a week from home, but certainly you're never going to see the five days a week commute to the office thing to hard workers ever again. And do you think that, you know, in terms of the productivity loss, as you guys measure it, those are some reasonably quantitative measures of productivity that, uh, that they're seeing that increase? Yeah, they, they've, uh, they've studied a lot. And uh, 
if you had said this two years ago, people would have said, you're crazy, it'll never happen. But uh, because everyone out and did it, uh, and they found out quickly how to make it work, uh, they found that productivity has, in fact, uh, increased. And I'm not, I'm not even mentioning the oppressive cost of real estate in big, big metro areas, which is going down very quickly. I'm just right. talking about people time. And so I, I think there's issues, some issues you've got to manage differently around. But basically, if you can, if you can do that well, you're going to be better off. So Dave, at Inky, great startup and certainly one of the leaders in their field. I use it as well. So it's phishing is, a, is that's where most cybersecurity uh, hacks really kind of happen. But you employ folks now. You have uh, engineers, you have marketing folks, you're a couple of levels into your fundraising rounds here. So you've you got a real company with real stuff here. So you've, you both have to manage this as a CEO, but you're also selling a digital product, which should theoretically benefit your company, this, this new world. What are you seeing, Dave? What, what are your thoughts here? Yeah, I mean, interestingly, since we just closed a round of funding, we closed our B round in June, which, by the way, was done entirely, all the diligence was done entirely over Zoom. Uh, I have, I've <laughs> still not met in person the partner from Insight Partners who was on our board. Oh, my word. This is fascinating, right? So you can raise $20 million virtually, uh, it turns out. Uh, but we've been hiring really rapidly. And so the onboarding has been really, I wouldn't say a challenge, but it's been a little worrisome in that, you know, if you look at your company and it's half new people who have never physically met each other, so far it seems fine. But, you, but you know, you still have this kind of, I guess we'll call it pre-COVID worry that, you know, how's that going to work? So far it seems to work fine. You know, and I would say for us, we have a certain amount of tailwinds for our business, because phishing is such a problem, and it's a problem that's magnified since the beginning of COVID. In fact, according to our metrics, we've seen the number of phishing emails per regular mail triple since the beginning of COVID. Wow. So three times as many phishing emails. And we've also seen very COVID-specific targeted mails. And these just highlight how incredibly evil and shameless these bad guys are. I mean, we'll see emails that claim to be from the person's company saying, you know, your colleague died of COVID, click here to get information on it. You know, and it's a credential harvesting operation. And then of course, we've just seen phishing ramp, ramp up across the board, probably because the attackers are home <laughs> being more productive too. That's true. So, <laughs> well, this is two sides of that coin. I mean, so I think we've seen uh, our own productivity probably go up. If anything, I would say the, the, the situation with our customers and prospect base has been mixed. I think there's been a lot of, for the people that have to install a system like ours, they've been very distracted by getting everybody set up with work from home. So mm -hmm. while their aggregate productivity may be the same or up, they're very distracted by tasks they didn't have at all pre-COVID. And I think we're starting to come out of that now, but we certainly saw the effect of that in Q2 and Q3 longer sales cycles, longer time to get to close on deals, longer time to get stuff installed. Again, it feels like we're sort of coming out of that now, but, I, but I'm also wary of, you know, we may be going into a winter where COVID gets worse again, so we'll have to see. So I'm not saying we're out of the woods yet, but it definitely seems to be improving. Hmm. That's really actually a great segue into my sort of next thing I want to talk about, which is security. Uh, something both of you guys have some uh, fairly deep experience in. Uh, you've got a company that's really all about that. I mean, to me, it's clear that we're in the midst of a cyber war with China, Russia, Iran, and others. A lot of these phishing emails are coming from these places, and they're both done for economic and strategic reasons, but it's, it's coming fast and furious. With business, uh, you you can take some uh, you can take some action against that. There are tools there, less so in the in the personal market. Like if someone's staying at home, you know they don't have the IT department right down the the hall to kind of walk in and and troubleshoot what's happening. But you know, interesting thing, I just finished binge watching The Americans. Have you ever seen that on on, TV, oh, yeah. on Prime mm -hmm. Video? Great show, great show. Uh, it's it was uh, done a few years ago. I think it ended in 2018, but six really entertaining seasons about the Cold War in 1980s DC where you had the KGB and the FBI and the CIA at, literally at war with one another, you know, like spy versus spy stuff. Um, and I think it's loosely based on uh, some true stuff. And I think, that, didn't Dave, you, didn't you have your, your dad was in the CIA during that period? Wouldn't NSA, he, the other three letters. NSA, agency. okay. Yeah. But he would, have been he would have been aware of some of this, these hijinks going on here, right? Um, and there were a lot of hijinks. <laughs> there are lots of hijinks. And it's really, and it's opened my eyes because I'm, I'm one of those that's like, this hasn't necessarily gone away. It's maybe taking a new form. 
And I think the cyber arena is kind of where, where it's leading. So what do you, I mean, you've given us some ideas about what the relative levels of risks and how they've increased, but what are some of the new stuff that you're seeing uh, that really characterizes where you think the cyber war is going? Yeah, I can take that one. And, and then I'm sure George will have some, some additional thoughts. Um, we've seen phishing attacks that are very sophisticated that don't just target high value targets, but are used in spray and pray attacks now. So the idea that, oh, I'm not a target because my business is small, those days are long gone. And we see mm-hmm. evidence, for example, that the attackers are scraping org chart information off of LinkedIn and they're using it to tailor their phishing messages that are spear phishing messages. So they'll send a mail to an employee. They know the CEO's name because they got it off LinkedIn. They send it from that person. They even know potentially the person's you know title, exactly how they write it. And even more scary, we're seeing a trend where they'll send these to people right when they start a new job. So yeah. they're looking for the transition on LinkedIn. When someone changes their job, you know, their affiliation, they go target them with a brand new fish from the new CEO, their new company, because they're much more likely to answer it at that point. And that's just across the board, all different company sizes. The other thing that we're seeing is remarkable sophistication on the part of the attackers. And we don't know if these are state actors or organized crime or who, but remarkable sophistication on the attacker's part, understanding exactly how the current incumbent security email gateways work. These are companies like Proofpoint and Mimecast that have been around for 20 years. Mm -hmm. The attackers know exactly how those systems work, exactly the kind of pattern matching they're doing. And they know obscure corners of HTML, CSS, Unicode, these web standards. And they're abusing those standards to hide from these pattern matching systems. So I'll give you an example, which was just mind blowing to me. You know, and Unicode is this representation of all the different letters of all the different alphabets right. in the world. So it's got, I don't know, 150,000 characters in it. One of them is something called soft hyphen. And I didn't even know this. And I've known about Unicode since it was standardized in 1990. Soft hyphen, turns out, is a character that you as the author can put in that tells the rendering engine it's safe to break the line there. In other words, you know, you're telling it, hey, you could, you could break the line here and put a, put a visible hyphen in. You know, like people do at the end of the line. Well, so the attackers are putting these characters in, in between all the letters of phrases like Office 365 or voicemail, things that they know the security mail gateways are scanning for. And here's the amazing thing about this soft hyphen. It's invisible. <laughs> like it's a character that doesn't render as anything. So the human recipient just sees Office 365, but the seg sees something totally different that they don't match. And so that kind of thing just shows you there are very smart people out there who understand the, the deep, dark corners of you know, computing standards and also exactly how these systems work that are trying to protect us. Unbelievable. Now, George, you're at the board of Lockheed. You guys are a defense contractor, obviously, but you're, you sell a massive technology and, and your, your time with IBM. You were a Sony at the time of a hack there. What are your thoughts here? I mean, you've, what are you telling clients and where do you see the vulnerabilities? Well, I completely agree with Dave that uh, the level of risk has really increased. Uh, hackers have gotten smarter. They're sophisticated. They have uh, tremendous technology talent. They know what they're doing. And they can be state-sponsored hackers, you know, uh, the U.S., the NSA. You know, we, we have our own team of hackers. We're not, we're not alone. Uh, the Russians have them, the Chinese have them, the Koreans. Everybody's got a team of hackers. It's part of – it's like Army, Air Force, Marines – Hacker you have that. And so it could be state actors or it could be organized crime. It could be individuals. It could be people with an attitude. It could be any number of things. And one of the things that's really, really difficult, and I'll just say, and maybe Dave has an answer to this, is I fought off some big hack attacks in companies before. And one of the things that's really difficult is in order to do that, you know, I had to hire white hat hackers. These are good hackers that help you defeat the enemy because they can go in, they can do testing and, you know, and, but, you know, every time I would hire them and I hired, but I would always wonder, how do I know they're always white hack? What if, what if their white hat goes away? When, when right. maybe, you don't, I don't know. So I, Dave, you have any advice about this? Because Make you know, sure you pay them on time. Difficult. Yeah, pay, <laughs> you them. pay them on time. Well, I don't have any advice on that, uh, but I will share a story that someone who is also a part of the intelligence community shared with me. 
there's a reason why a lot of the organized crime, cybersecurity organized crime, is in former Russian republics. Because when the Soviet Union collapsed, all those people who were paid to do this hacking were out of work. So they were able to use their skills, put out their own shingle and do it. So if you don't employ these people gainfully, they will... They will self-employ <laughs> as gray or black hats. That's, That's the lesson right. there. So, That's brilliant. Uh, and it's so true. I mean, you know, it, you know, it Jim, rises to its own level, the, 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 the competence. And Jim, you and I have talked about before my experience at ITA Software. Again, that, was, that became Google Flights. Um, we had an industrial espionage case where the Chinese government had paid somebody $10 million to get our source code. I mean, I remember that. And I can't really talk about it because I don't know what happened with it because, you know, my, my co-founder was the one who dealt with the FBI on it. But I mean, this is something that has been happening for 10, 15 years at least. And it's just utterly brazen. I mean, this is not even any attempt to cover their tracks. So I think you can only imagine how bad it is now. The interesting thing about this is, you know, where everybody's going more and more digital. So I do a lot of work helping companies digitize their supply chain. It's a fabulous thing. The transparency, the visibility, you know, it, you know, fabulous. But the only thing about it is I always worry, you got to make sure you have the cyber security set. Because instead of just, you know, instead of hacking into personal accounts and getting your credit card information, they could be hacking into something and getting shipping containers rerouted to the Seychelles or something. I mean, really, there's a whole levels of risk that happen uh, around companies that are beyond just, you know, finding out about, you know, how you spend your personal time on, on the uh, on the websites. Interesting. Well, that's a great segue into sort of the, my next topic, which is China. <laughs> since, <laughs> since 2016 uh, in the Trump administration, China and the U.S. have been decoupling economically in areas like trade, supply chains, as uh, George works on, foreign direct investment, capital markets, technology, talent, number of areas. So take semiconductors uh, for an example, uh, where recent changes of the entity list limits the exports of U.S. semiconductors or any semiconductors to Chinese companies from anywhere in the world, and as long as they're uh, as long as they're based on American technology. So this has cut off Chinese companies like Huawei and and SMIC from getting high-end semiconductor technology anywhere in the world. But yet China is driving to make itself the leader in these areas uh, in, with standards like five, in areas like 5G and AI. We've already entered the world of sort of the splinter net where you've got balkanized internets going through various filters. China's Great Red Wall is, is a great example of that. It's just a different version. It's only what the government allows you to see. We see that same thing happening in Russia, uh, in Iran, in other countries. So I guess my question is, this decoupling, which is underway between the United States and China, or between China and the West, is it possible to drive this too far? Uh, and given that, could there be any further decoupling? And do you think that uh, U.S. policy will change maybe with a possible Biden presidency? So I'm going to give that to you first, George. Uh, well, I think that uh, China has been an issue in the world stage for quite some time. So uh, Trump stepped up to, to try to make something happen. And uh, I think that was appropriate. You know, and I, I think the pushback uh, has been effective in many ways. You know, from a supply chain perspective, uh, Almost every company in the world now is thinking, you know what, we can't just build all our plants in China. Can't do it. Got to do some other. So everybody gets that message there. So that's happening. So that decoupling from a physical manufacturing perspective is going on right now. Underway. From an internet perspective, you know, we've, I, you know, we've all been over to China a lot and, you know, you, you can't get Facebook. So it's really, a, it's really an impressive place. But not only that, but when, you, uh, when I came back the last time, my phone had been so badly hacked, I had to throw it away because, I mean, I, uh, it, it was absolutely destroyed. I don't know who hacked it or why, but it was, uh, I, I, kept, I kept going to some Chinese website no matter how I uh, try to use Safari. You know, the, the point is that China is uh, not alone in doing this. Uh, many people are trying to manage information. Uh, if you look at Fox and MSNBC, you could say they're doing the same thing. It's not the internet, but it's still managing people's access to information. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this channeling of focus, this channeling of fact base. It's not just an internet issue. It is an internet issue for sure, but it's also just facts in the world issue. And we, we as people, we've we've really kind of lost our rudder for how to navigate through this and get to the right information at the right time. Interesting. That sounds like an opportunity, actually. Dave, your thoughts? Yeah, I have two two thoughts. I mean, one is on the whole supply chain issue, and if you think about 
you know, computer equipment and, and, you know, electronic, anything that has semiconductors in it, any, even cars, right. They have thousands of components in them that are sourced from all over the place. I think what's going to have to happen is we're going to have to have, you know, cryptographic verification of authenticity of these parts. So, you know, for example, in my world of email, there's, there's a standard that lets, lets the recipient of the mail, you know, Inky, for example, prove that the mail came from a certain mail server, right? So we can prove with using digital signatures, yep, that mail that claims to be from Microsoft, yep, it definitely came from that Microsoft mail server, so that's right. good, right? We can prove a chain of custody virtually. There's no reason you can't digitally sign components in the same way and essentially verify all the way back to the root where did these components come from and have they been tampered with? So I think it's a little far-fetched now because a lot of groundwork has to be done for doing this in the physical world, whereas we're doing it in the virtual world now. But the cryptography has existed since the 70s to do this. So I think that's an area that sort of not just rely on your supply chain because you have relationships with your supplier, but have a provable chain of custody back to the factory that made it. The other thing I'll say is that I'm very concerned personally about the consolidation of semiconductor power in Taiwan, because I think that further makes Taiwan, which is already a flashpoint between the US and China, and one of the likely places that a hot war could erupt between the two countries, you know, that just magnifies it even more. So I certainly hope that whoever is in the next administration continues to push back on China, but also very specifically pushes for movement of a lot of the semiconductor manufacturing onshore to the US. I think it'd be actually better for Taiwan as well, because, you know, you've already seen China make very aggressive moves in all the waters around there. You know, mm -hmm. they, they basically have a different view of what territory is theirs than the rest of the world. And they're <laughs> patrolling it as though it's theirs. So I, I really, I, I'm very concerned about the whole semiconductor substrate of our modern economy uh, being centralized there. And, and, it, and Intel's really kind of dropped the ball over the last five years competitively. So that's made it even worse. Yeah, there's no doubt that we're in a competition with China that we need to up our game at. And Taiwan is definitely a flashpoint. You know, so when we've got an election coming up, and I think one of uh, the things that, at least for me as a voter, that Donald Trump did uh, that was a good job on was exposing who China really was. And not just China, some other you know bad foreign actors, and not uh, necessarily giving in to them. So now that we are sure, now we've cut through the mustard and all the nice talk and so on, we know that they're rivals. We know what they're doing. You would hope that there's bipartisan. It used to be that our foreign policy was a bipartisan issue. You know, the deck chairs could change in the D.C. Titanic from red to blue, but everyone was on the same page with with regard to the Russians. I hope it's that same way with China. So do you think it would be different with someone else in the White House on this than, than President Trump, which I think is going to be likely in November? George? Well, I, I, I think a couple of things. One is, uh, for me, I'm not worried about Taiwan. And I'm not worried about it because I really believe that whoever is in the White House would defend that line. Uh, How? Like uh, we would go to war with Taiwan or we'll go to war with China over Taiwan. I, I think, I think everybody knows that that's, that's a line you don't cross. Um, and TSMC is the, the, the giant semiconductor company that's making. And, you know, one thing about semiconductors is you have to have massive production in order to get cost low because you have to spend so much to build the, the tooling and the diet. You need a massive plant right. uh, in order to make it. So that's why, and TSMC has done a fabulous job of doing that. So I, I agree with David for one thing. And that is, you know, when I was at IBM, there, we, we made processors. We didn't make memory. Micron makes memory, and they're, doing, they're, they're a dominant player. But we made processors, and uh, we had black projects where, you know, we did it for the U.S. government. I didn't even know what it was, but all I knew was a bunch of people worked on it, and they paid us. Uh, so cemeteries are crit critically important. We need to have some types of it resident in the U.S. Like, I'm, I really believe that uh, high-end processors should only be in the U.S., uh, but other times, you know, TS buying the chips from Taiwan and TSMC, I'm okay with it. I think it would be, whether it's a Trump or a Biden in the White House, the policy would be the same about this. Some of the rhetoric would change, but I think that almost all Americans agree that being firm with China is probably the right posture. Not trying to get to war. There's no war. You don't want to go to war with him. We don't have a, a battle. There's no fighting involved. But just keeping the pressure up is probably the right strategy. And I think, I think both parties would do that. Mm. Well, yeah, you, I agree you, with that. Go ahead, Dave. Yeah, I agree with that. I think both parties are on the same page. And I think it probably took a wake-up call 
from, from you know, and obviously Trump did it to make people realize this. But and look, I mean, I think the interesting thing is it's not like Americans don't want to compete. We do want to compete. We just don't want to be stolen from. Right. I mean, That's right. just rampant IP theft is what has to end. It's not like we don't want them to try to make great products. Uh, I just think that they've had this pattern over the last three, four decades of, you know, they build a plan and, and either forcibly gain the IP by, you know, having to do a joint, making the U.S. company do a joint venture with them or UK company or European, you know, or they just surreptitiously steal the IP. That's the thing that we've got to really go hard on. And it absolutely is a cyber war as much as it is a hot war now. I mean, cyber war is the new cold war. Hmm. So based on what I'm hearing from you guys, do you think that, yes, we're in a cyber war, yes, it's getting more serious, and you probably don't think it's going to change, whatever administration ends uh, ends up in uh, coming in in November, there's going to be a uh, consensus around that China needs to be dealt with in these areas. I hope you're right. You know, when we talk about middle-class jobs and protecting our, our you know, the long-term uh, advantages we have in our economy, just it's critical that we protect those. We can't just give those away. That's a taller order in a theoretically free society like America. I'm sure, they don't have this problem in China because that's a surveillance state. So we are, our very nature of who we are makes us easier to steal from. And we've been able to keep up with that by always inventing better stuff over the decades. But it seems like the the curve is sort of reaching its asymptotic uh, lowest level now. How how long are we going to be able to keep that up? Because eventually the, the Chinese are going to get smarter and, and be able to build this stuff themselves. So the elephant in the room. In less than a month, we have a new election. We have a, we're going to elect a new president or the same president and Senate and the Congress. So it's a, and this is a big one. I don't know if you guys had a chance to listen to my podcast last week, but we had Whitney Tilson on and uh, Whitney's a, an investor, an investing advisor. But just like you guys, a really smart, well-educated guy, expert researcher, probably leans a little left, uh, as you guys are all left of me, and Whitney's probably right in that, that bunch there. And that's, that's why I enjoy talking to you. We can seek out middle ground, which is the object of this uh, podcast, really. His look at the, the data, the betting data at predictic.org, uh, as well as the real clear poll, suggests to him that the Democrats will win the presidency and they will sweep the Senate in November 3rd. And I know we heard this in 2016, but I think the circumstances are changed. They're not the same in 2020. And uh, Mr. Trump may have overstayed his welcome, and he very well may be defeated by Biden. So Whitney provided some portfolio recommendations for a Biden presidency, include things like infrastructure stocks, cannabis, Smith & Wesson <laughs> for the 40 or 50% of the country that, that don't want what the Democrats are selling, certainly green energy. I think it's clear that we're going to have higher personal and business taxes. I mean, I'm, I try to take people at their word. If Democrats tell us they're going to raise our taxes, then we know that that's going to come. The business taxes worry me the most. Uh, some of this boom that we've seen in, uh, since 2016 has really been you know, the sound of companies with foreign operations bringing those home and repatriating those in the United States, which creates jobs. It's good for our middle class. In your opinion, Dave Baggett, do we see a return of companies moving operations overseas, a trend that Trump was able to reverse? Yeah, I think it's likely that the tax regime for especially the largest U.S. companies is going to become a lot more negative under Biden. I think to your earlier point about 2016 versus 2020, you know, I was reading a recent report from Charlie Cook. He writes the Cook Political Report. Oh, I think He's, I read the same one. Yes. He just incredibly knowledgeable. and. You know, he did a whole analysis of how, yes, we were wrong before. This time we have to be a lot more wrong, and it seems even really unlikely we're that wrong. <laughs> That's right. It'll be really funny if Trump wins again because Charlie Cook will have to eat his hat again. Um, but I think it's very unlikely Trump wins unless there's some big seismic shift in the next few weeks. Yeah. And as for the the Senate, I mean, the interesting byproduct of the Republicans losing the Senate is, well, now you've got all this pent up rage on the left about these Supreme Court nominees. And I was reading a Brookings Institute analysis says there's actually no reason why the Congress can't send existing Supreme Court judges back down to federal circuit courts and appoint new people. They don't even have to change the composition of the four. They can just say, Kavanaugh, you're done. You go back to the circuit, you go back to federal circuit and we're putting somebody new in. So this is really in play. The whole, the whole. If you've got you know Democrats in control of the entire 
Congress and the White House, then the, the form of the Supreme Court is very much in play. On the tax regime, you know, I'm actually, in a, and I, obviously I am left of you, Jim, when I say this, but you know, I, I think it's absurd that Amazon pays less in taxes than a typical restaurant does. And that's I agree with sustainable you. That, that, that's a bipartisan. That's a bipartisan issue. I agree with you. That has to be fixed. But I would hope that there's some way we can solve the problem of these mega, you know, frankly overly large quasi monopoly companies paying no taxes without burdening the innovative part of the economy. Because we already have this huge crushing weight of anti competition on companies like mine, and everybody in software is feeling this. You know, raising taxes on us will be make it even worse. You know, on the other hand, I think without some way to make these companies, I mean, you know, we've seen the stats, right? The top five tech companies hold a third of the cash of the entire S and P five hundred, something That's like that. That's I incredible. Mean, it's totally absurd, and I think untenable with the American people that they don't pay a reasonable amount of tax, but. That's why they hired their lobbyists, it's, Dave. It's got that has to be fixed. Remember, do no evil. But 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 unfortunately, the problem with that is probably it ends up imposing much higher taxes on every company, and that'll be even worse for innovation. Well, that's the thing. I mean, you could certainly make the case, and I would make the case as you did that big tech has become too big, and there's got to be a way to that they're they're stifling competition in a lot of areas. There's got to be a way to, that they should be paying higher taxes. The problem is that becomes a slippery slope is once you do it for them, then like, what's the right. next tier? Before you know it, it's in, it's in everyone's backyard and there's unintended negative consequences. George, what are your, what are your thoughts here? Is, are, we, are we looking at a Biden presidency? And if so, how are you planning for that with your customers? Well, you know, number one, uh, I think the data is not in. You know, the fact is that uh, the whole nature of polling is based on asking somebody who are you going to vote for? And therein right. lies the weakness. Because for whatever reason, a lot of Trump supporters don't want to say out loud they support Trump. And I'm not sure why that is. But I was in a restaurant with you, Jim, and we were there talking. And this yep. woman sitting next to me says, well, I'm a Trump supporter too, but I would never tell anyone. That's a really typical. I don't know why that is. And that's why Trump blew Hillary away, uh, one of the many reasons. But but that, you know, that, so that could happen again. Now, the pollsters, course, so the pollsters say that they've adjusted for that this time. It could be, but their le- the level of confidence that I have in them is is lower than usual, I would say. I want to trust the polls, I want to trust the numbers, but it's it's difficult to say. So I'm not I don't want to think it's for sure, guess what? Congress turns Democrat and we get Biden as a uh, president, uh, soon to be succeeded by Kamala Harris or something. I don't want to have any theory like that. But I do think there's something else, Jim, that we need to talk about, which is the federal deficit is an absolutely oppressively high number like we've never seen before. Haven't uh, you heard? Disconnect- it doesn't matter anymore. I know it doesn't matter to, to many people. <laughs> That's a, it doesn't matter to Republicans either. But, but here's the thing. We're going to have to raise some more revenue somehow. Now, billionaire tax, taxes on companies, you know, uh, you know, pick on tech, pick on everybody you want. But uh, we're going to have to raise some more revenue to pay the, to pay the bills. And uh, I think higher taxes are going to be part of that. I think if it's done the right way through a fairer approach to the tax code, you know, it just is a, I, I, this is not an accident that right before this happens, it's disclosed that for 12 years, Trump has paid virtually no taxes and neither has Bezos and neither has Amazon. Neither ha- I mean, this is, you know, to the average person, they're like this. I just think there's got to be something wrong with this. From the real estate perspective, I mean, Trump's a real, you know, real estate developer. There've been laws in place for years where, with depreciation, and he he had some failed businesses. He had tax losses from failures, and you get to carry those forward. So there's nothing nefarious happening, but it, it is engineering. So on one hand, you want to tax success. So Dave's going to exit uh, Inky and make you know be the next Bond billionaire. You know, mm-hmm. he should pay long-term capital gains to incense that kind of creative behavior that, uh, that Dave has um, because if taxes are too high, that's like, well, why do I want to do that? Maybe he, he's, he takes it less seriously. So the relationship between taxes and the relative level of business productivity, we all know that that exists. That doesn't, you know, it's not as if you can raise taxes and expect uh, people to be as productive as they were before. Uh, well, in my opinion, you want my opinion, opinion about that? This is one of the cases where I, I don't completely agree with you. For sure, you know, there's an influence, but I think Dave is a serial entrepreneur. He's a tremendously creative guy with great ideas, super good skills, and he's going to create companies that, that are successful and productive and, and uh, 
make people happy. So I think he's going to continue as he is. Even if his tax, even if he's got to pay, say, 75% of all the gains that he gets from all that hard work to Uncle Sam, is he still going to do that? Dave, what are, you, are you still going to do that for – you get to keep a quarter of what you make. Is that enough? <laughs> well, yeah, but probably I wouldn't actually. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple factors right now. One is it's pretty clear if Biden wins, we're going to see – long-term cap gains just go to regular income rates. So that I think that's, that's just going to go away. That's a, that's that's a huge a deal. deal. The other thing we've seen the left talk a lot about is this concept of a wealth tax, which I think is absolutely a horrific idea. Mm-hmm. You know, for example, we give all of our employees, every single one, no matter what their role, we give them some options, some ownership in the company, but it's absolutely illiquid. You know, no one can even legally sell those shares companies in control of who gets to buy and sell shares. So now if you're saying my employees have to pay X percent of their net worth every year, how do they even pay it? So I mean the whole the whole idea You'd have to calculate this, it. You'd have to incur the overhead to bring in accounting firms to calculate your whatever your book value is and that's probably how they do it. But even worse than that, I think for people who are in tech, some of some of them are lucky enough to be in companies that are growing rapidly, the vast majority of their net worth might be illiquid. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, that could have a massive chilling effect on all startups. You know, for me as an entrepreneur, the tax climate does affect how I think about it, but I wouldn't say it affects it as much as the general, very anti-competitive nature of big tech right now. That's much more oppressive to me and makes me much less likely to start another software company than the tax regime. So, so if, if I were to... picking one silver bullet, I'd, I would go for antitrust litigation and break up these tech companies. The big Okay. Tech companies. So what do we do with, let's say, like when we, we talk about big tech, let's define the box, just the FANG stocks for right now. Um, well, for which example, one, where would you start? Yeah. I mean, I'd start with, you know, Apple owning their own app store and having an exclusive. I mean, I would never, not only would I never try to make a business around an app, I'd never fund a company that has an app. Because they're essentially completely held hostage to Apple, who will have, who has demonstrated time and time again, they will directly compete against you in their own app store and and clone what you built because they have the data to know it's doing well. There is zero real competition in those app stores anymore. Similarly, like you say, Amazon has tabs on everything that's selling well and they can go make their generic version. It's just that can't be allowed to happen long term where you've got a company that's a competitor in a platform and the owner of the same platform and the platform is exclusive. That just, that just can't be allowed to continue. I'm not saying there will be antitrust law anytime soon that fixes that, but I think that's a massive chilling effect. That has a massively mm-hmm. chilling effect on competition where the, where the platform owner is a quasi-competitor in that same platform. That- no doubt about it. Now, now the, I guess my next question would be, but these big tech companies are almost 100% big donors and to Democrats, both personally out of the, the big you know, fat, wealthy founders are, are donating to campaign funds. They're providing infrastructure and all sorts of other help to get, get Democrats elected. It, what you're saying is that would take some real courage on the part of a Joe Biden and a Kamala Harris to then say, thank you for your money. Thank you for your help getting us elected. We're now going to break you up. Yeah, I agree. It would. I'm sure John Rockefeller paid a lot of uh, political favors in his time too, but yep. <laughs> eventually it yeah. didn't stop trust busting from happening. Yeah. You know, I, uh, I'm kind of a fan of big tech and I, I understand the issues that Dave has and he's hundred percent right. But the truth is, if you look at the world economy, where does the U S absolutely lead? It's tech. Who has got the best search engine? It's Google or maybe Bing. You know, who's got the best social networking? Well, it's either Twitter or it's Facebook. Well, you know, you go down the list, you know, we crush, this is why the rest of the world is mad at us. We crush them in tech. And uh, I think that's okay. You know, it's, it's near where we lead. We're not going to lead in some sectors, but in tech, we ought to do what we can to continue to win. And I, I know Dave's saying about separating the app store platform owner from the competition and the same with Amazon. There's a lot of truth in that too, but let's, let's not get down on tech because guess what? It's a great business. We're making money on it around the world, and uh, they're creating jobs. I mean, there's a lot of good things about it, too. That, that's a great point, George. And I think that's the point that the tech guys would make. Uh, actually, I read Eric Schmidt is the chairman of a, of a big government-sponsored working group. And their main mission is that, hey, China wants to dominate in 5G. They want to dominate in AI. They want to, they want to dominate tech. Mm-hmm. 
And we need government help. Like we need you to double down with hardcore research through that's federally funded so we can keep up and keep our lead because we can't diminish that lead. And they're going to use that as the lever to say, okay, we need to stay big because China is a threat. How do you weigh what Dave is saying? And I totally agree with Dave too. They're just, uh, they're just, they have a chilling effect on the very thing that you're talking about, George. But on the same, on the other hand, we have this external threat that requires scale to deal with. Yeah, that's the, that's the thing about a lot of tech plays is they require scale. It's like the semiconductor business. You can't if you can't go big, don't go. There's no there's no other way to play it. Same with many of these businesses. You know, you don't you, you want you want to go to Google. You don't want to go to some other search engine. So the fact is that we got to encourage these companies to grow and be successful. We got to find a way to help them play fair. But, you know, China is moving ahead. They're, they're making the right investments. They got super smart people doing smart things. And, you know, you think of one other, one other thing I'll mention, you, you know, let's look at the uh, electric car business. You know, that's a business where we subsidize that as a country, where our, ta- our tax dollars subsidize electric car development for a long time. Still, we, we do it less, but we still do it. But you know what? Guess what? We are kicking the world's butt in electric cars. We're not kicking the world's butt in any other kind of vehicle, as far as I can tell. But mm-hmm. Tesla... Now that is a that is a car of the future, and you know what? It's make it's going to be a world beater. So let, let's keep doing some of that. If, if we need some government money to help do that, a subsidy of some type or a, a tax break, something like that, because we think it's strategically important, I, I don't disagree with that. You know, that's that's a that, that's not a bad thing for government. So you would you would disagree with Dave's point that we need some antitrust legislation for at least some tech companies? Well, we need to find ways to manage the tech companies to keep them in their swim lanes. How would you do that? Give me an example short of antitrust legislation that maybe Dave could sign up for. Dave, well, you're going to get your chance here in a second. Let's pick Apple, for example, because they're, they're front page all the time because you know, the big thing with Fortnite and you know the Epic Games get a workaround so they don't have to pay the 30%, uh, all very understandable. Uh, but you know what should you do about that? Well, Apple would say, guess what? They're so big and they're so successful because people could go to our app store and download your so- software. If you weren't on our platform, you're not going to be selling that software. So therefore, we want 30%. That's an argument. It makes sense. But I think it's a little bit old. And I think what has to happen is there needs to be some encouragement, probably a legal encouragement, that would force Apple to think differently about how it runs its app store. Force Apple to uh, maybe have a sliding scale. So in the early stages of a company, maybe you have to pay to 30% because your value add is very low. For later stages, when you've already got the, you know, the market base, like Epic Games does with, uh, with Fortnite, then maybe you should pay less. So I think it's something around that is better than saying, hey, let's take Apple and break it, make it break it into two companies, or let's take Google, because you know what? Apple is a world-beating company. We want that. Google is a world-beating company. We want that. Let's not break up some of the U.S.'s crown jewels. Yeah, I think they're not mutually incompatible. I think if you broke up these companies, they'd produce multiple new companies that were more competitive in aggregate than the original monolith. And probably the founders of those companies would get richer than they would have if it stayed a monolith as well. I think the only way to have fair rules in something like an app store is to have the app store be independent from from Apple and independent from Google and have its own rules that doesn't favor itself because it's just the app store. It's not also the purveyor of its own software. You know, likely that would create a lot of new opportunity. I mean, I struggle to find a scenario where you could have a company like Google exist now as a startup. I can't even publish any software without, unless it's at the pleasure of Google and Apple now. In some cases, Microsoft, you know, for example, if it's corporate software, I have to be in their ecosystem. But the uh, free web as it existed in 1998 when Google started, there's no analog to that now. I don't think that breaking these companies up would damage the value creation for the United States. It would probably enhance it. But it would also, I mean, the, the key thing that the, the America's done over the last 50 years has been to maintain a competitive environment. You contrast that with Europe, which has historically been viewed as overregulated and uncompetitive. One could argue that we're going that same path of now there's essentially the monopolistic equivalent of regulatory capture where, yeah, no one's ever going to be able to make a search engine again of any kind because there's no way you could possibly do that in the current competitive landscape. Google's directing all data to itself, and it will have its version of AI that'll be difficult to beat because you have to have, to have data. Yeah. That's actually the exact argument that Eric Schmidt is making to Washington and to the lobbyists. It's like, hey, we need this data. So as a sort of small government, libertarian, privacy kind of person, I see dark days ahead 
if they're allowed to do that, that they'll have the precondition to clear away a whole host of privacy assets that we've had in this country, both at the individual level, the corporate level, all in the name of the greater good of defeating China, maybe. Well, Jim, what would be what would be your suggestion? Do you think should we break Google up and put it search engine in a different break the search? Yes. What would we do with it? How how would we? Yes. No. You basically would put the search engine in its own separate separate it from Android. You'd separate it from Google Play. Essentially, hive off each of these different business units from each other, and they have to work independently of each other. So that way, the competitive app store landscape is more acute with Apple, where Apple will literally just copy stuff that other third parties have done and build it into the operating system. You know, I mean, like even when back in the early days of Inky, we had our own app. And not only did Apple continuously ban our app for specious reasons, they tried to hire our developers. I mean, it's just not even remotely competitive. So if Apple were forced to deal arm's length with their own app store, as though the app store were a separate entity, you'd see a lot different behavior and probably a lot more innovation. I'd rather have subsidies go to 10,000 startups than go to five gigantic companies. Of course, Eric Schmidt doesn't want that because he wants all the money to go to his own bank account. But I think it's much better for the United States to have, you know, the 10,000 startups thriving, not the five behemoths. Well, certainly I agree with you that the startup landscape in the U.S. is a major competitive asset. There's no country in the world that can do it as well as we do. And uh, we got to keep that working. And it's not, there are many indicators it's not competitive anymore. Look at how the rate of acquisitions by these big companies have gone down. Google and Apple don't need to acquire anything anymore. They can just copy everything. They don't need to acquire companies, so they're not. When was the last time you saw a big Google acquisition? I mean, my company was acquired by Google in 2010. They haven't done an acquisition of that size in years now. They don't need to. I go back to this uh, series, The American, the 1980s version of this. One of the big things that these KGB folks, you know, they were just husband and wife with their two kids. They're just travel agents. But the missions they get uh, on a monthly basis from home office in Russia are really to steal IP. Back in those days, it was uh, microbiobes. You know, definitely the, they mentioned the Arapnet, the earliest days of the internet. Oh, right. What is that? <laughs> and uh, they got uh, grabbed some hard drives, uh, how to make more drought-resistant wheat. They stole that. So that's a stealing in, in a coercion culture versus a free culture that develops it themselves. And I think China is a bit like that as well. So when I look at Google or Facebook or Apple literally just copying a product that's on the App Store that someone else innovated, isn't that kind of a form of, international, of IP theft? Yeah, of course it is. You know, it's an unfair playing field in so many ways. Obviously, they have lots of resources compared to a startup, but they also have all the data about every single one of that startup's competitors in the App Store. They know exactly who's doing well. I mean, in fact, when Facebook bought Instagram for an absurd amount of money, it didn't seem absurd to them because they saw the metrics. <laughs> they could see every single social app that's that right. booked into Facebook, right? You know, and again, I mean, I think people view these antitrust remedies as punishment and because of the Microsoft trial, uh, but they're not just punishment. They're actually, they rectify irregularities that have just been created in the economy that need to be rectified to maintain a competitive landscape. And again, you know, I think Sergey and Larry probably get richer if you break Google into 10 companies, because then those 10 will become big independently of each other. I think that, uh, I think it's unlikely. I think it's highly unlikely that whether Trump is reelected or Biden's reelected, that we're going to move forward and break up Google, Apple, Microsoft, you know, pick the company you don't like, Amazon, pick, pick all the app players, pick all the store owners. I think it's highly unlikely that we're going to we're going to do that. And, I, and I, in some ways, I think that's good because I think we have some big, powerful companies that are making innovation happen in a different way. Uh, you know, I, I think for sure, if there's IP theft, they should be taken, that should be taken into account. They should be punished for it. But other than that, if they're using resources to help grow their business and, you know, use their information to grow uh, their knowledge about the world, it's a winning play. I, I don't have a problem with that. You know, free enterprise. Well, let me ask you a question on that. Should Apple be your bank also? Should they also sell you insurance? (laughs) Because that's where they're headed, right? They already have all of your music. They have their own network. Um, You know, I mean, like TV type network, make their own shows. Is there any point where you would say it's not very good for US to have a company in all these disparate areas and have leverage a monopoly in one area to get access to another? 
Well, you know, when I, when I worked at Sony, uh, I was in Tokyo. And you may not know this, but Sony, of course, you know, has Sony Pictures. They make TV shows and films. They have Sony Electronics. You know, they make, used to make the Walkman. They still make Oh, the, yes. But you know what else? They have the, one of the largest insurance companies in Japan. They're, they're, they're a financial player as well. What, what I think about that is, generally speaking, companies who get that large and start to branch out in different areas uh, end up not doing well. The only difference is if they're able to put together pieces that make more value for the customer. If they do that, then they'll do well. So for Apple Pay, how many people use Apple Pay? A lot of people do. So it's not, is it a bad thing? No, it's a good thing. Is it uh, impinging on my personal choice? No, because I can use any of a number. I, I can use PayPal. I can use other things. But uh, the fact that they're coming up with things, uh, I'm not worried about it. You know, the large companies, if as long as they're making money and being successful, they're making customers happy, then, then let's let them run. Let's let them go for it. So th- that's interesting because you, know, you could take an example like General Electric, which used the horizontal approach in manufacturing and industrial and finance. They just spread their wings uh, to the left and to the right as far as they could. And and they're a shell of their former self because yeah. they found uh, the laws of gravity finally kicked in. And it's like, you can only get so big and so wide and you're yeah. not going to be able to do all that stuff well. I really agree with you on this. And one of the things that happened with GE, I think they got arrogant. They got arrogant. They started to believe that they were the best at managing they had the GE Academy and everything. We had to be a GE manager. And once, whenever you see the literature start to suggest that some company is really well-managed, Sell, sell everything. <laughs> yeah. Sell everything. And I, think, you know, uh, I think the market will take care of these issues. I think the problem is, I mean, here's where we disagree. I mean, I don't think the market can take care of the payment issue on the phone because Apple has wired their Apple Pay mechanism into the phone so it's much more convenient than any other entrant is allowed to have. So it's not that they innovated, it's that they prevented others from integrating in the same way. That's just explicitly anti-competitive and it's using their monopoly on their user base to compete unfairly against the other hard companies. You can't pay on your phone with your visa in the same way as you can with Apple Pay. It's just not allowed by Apple. That's not the free market. That's not a market mechanism. That's Apple preventing other people from having the same capabilities, not because they're technical geniuses and the only ones that could make it work that way, because they're explicitly disallowing it on their platform. I mean, Apple could make the argument that you don't need to have an iPhone. You know, no, that's I'm sure a choice. Will, but the, but the you can have is, a flip phone or no phone at all. The point is that yes. for the United States public policy, that might work from an antitrust argument. And maybe that gets them out of any real antitrust litigation this time around. But from the United States public policy standpoint, okay, so now it's not just Apple. It's Apple plus Google equals the monopoly. So now we have a duopoly. Right. Clearly, there's no remote argument that that's not a duopoly. There is no phone you can buy that doesn't run either Apple or Google. So, so how does the United States view that combined entity, those two, effectively? And hey, guess what? They both have the same App Store fee. That's just a random coincidence, right? <laughs> I mean, well, here's here's the, here's the you other see the, the typical behavior: explicitly price fixing. So here, market, here's right because they so, they're the duopoly. <laughs> I love it. I'm in the middle of both of you guys, as both physically here on Zoom and and otherwise. That's an interesting point because when you look at the duopoly of an Apple and a Google, or you know, pick your alphabet out of the fang, their political power. You have to you know, with this scale that that, that George is talking about, that is good. Hey, you're continuing to deliver you know value for your customers. They vote with their dollars. They buy your products. It's convenient, whatever. Yes, you're the product. If it's an advertising-based offering, and and that that means your data is thrown around willy-nilly, but the government power that they have to wire the laws that allow them to deliver more effectively become a barrier to entry to anyone else. So, George, do you see any downside into the political power that goes with the economic power of these guys? Or are they just, you consider them just always benign actors that are looking out for the common good? Well, I I don't think they're looking out for the common good. Um, That's for sure. But I, I think they're working to make money for their shareholder owners. And to do that, they recognize that making customers happy is a requirement. And I think they're they're doing that. Why, you know, why do we only have Facebook instead of all, you know, instead of a bunch of different social? Because unfortunately, in a lot of technology plays, people want standards. And when you have standards, it, it can go different ways. Like if you say, okay, Android, 
is the Google standard for a phone. And, you know, if you're Huawei, you can have an Android phone. And if you're Google, you can make your own phone. And, if, you know, you can go through the list. Now, Apple says you know, we're only going to use our operating system on our phones. And that's, that's a play. We're integrated. You, you can't buy the operating system unless you buy our phone. I think both are good business plays that are fair. I think that we do have a duopoly. You're right, because you know, Android and the iPhone are the two standards for sure. Is it bothering me right now? No, because uh, the iPhones continue to come out. They're always better. They're always good. They're expensive, but they're good. Uh, you know, Google phones, if you like, I used to use them for years, Android-based phones. Uh, they're, they're good in a different way. So does a customer have choice? Customer still has a lot of choice. You know, if you're a developer, can you, are you happy to get on the app store so you can get your uh, either one, so you can get your software sold? Yeah, you're super happy. Do you I would totally disagree with that statement. Developers are not happy at all right now with app stores. They are absolutely not happy with them. They're right. maybe afraid to say anything about it because they're afraid of retribution from Apple and Google, but they're absolutely not happy with it. Mm. And, and to challenge one thing that you said, you know, as long as they're making the customer experience better, well, how about this? You know, I set up an Epic Games store account and I use sign in with Apple because it was convenient for me. And guess what? Two weeks ago, I got an email from Apple saying, this is disconnected. You can no longer log into your Epic Games and get your games because we're cutting off Epic. doesn't seem very consumer friendly to me that they cut off my account. I had nothing to do with this dispute, but now I can't log into my Epic account because Apple is having a fight with <laughs> could you Could you end around and go pay Epic directly outside of the Apple store? Well, Epic did eventually send a mail to everyone saying, log in with your email address and then we'll reattach you mm -hmm. to your account. That's clunky. But my but, point is yeah. that was just completely overtly user hostile to everybody who was using sign in with Apple, which by the way, no surprise, Apple mandates. If you have signed in with anything, Facebook, Google, any of these, now the App Store rules are you have to offer sign in with Apple. You have to okay. offer it, but you don't, that, that's one of several choices. You don't have, you have to, to only. offer it. You, it doesn't yeah. have to be the only one, but you have to offer it. So yeah. Epic offered it to comply with the App Store rules. And then lots of users signed up through it. And now all those users are inconvenienced and lost access to their stuff, at least temporarily, through unilateral action by Apple. That's a good point. And uh, the truth of it is that Apple's business model is really threatened, really threatened by you know, Epic, which is a super, you know, I don't know, they say 350 million people play Fortnite, just that one game that they make. But the point is, Epic pulls out and they get away with it. Man, Apple's App Store, anytime someone becomes big, they're going to go linear on them. It's going, to be a pro it's going to be a problem for their business model. So they are trying everything they can to not let somebody break the rules, their rules. It is inconvenient. And, you know, I, I'm a Fortnite user myself, so I, I get the problem. But, <laughs> right, but Apple's not entitled. <laughs> You're the oldest Fortnite user I've ever heard of. Way to go, George. Yeah. Yes. Remember, the if you go back to Steve Jobs' original justification for the App Store fees, it was to recover the cost. It was not to be right. a multi-billion dollar profit center. And now that they get the easy money from that, they don't want it to go away. Sure, I get that. But that doesn't mean it's not anti-competitive. <laughs> it, it can be profitable and very anti-competitive at the same time. Things often are. And I think Apple would be a perfectly fine business, probably still the richest in the world, even if they had zero App Store revenue next year. Yeah, there's so many. Apple is such a great topic, you know, because uh, they've done such an amazing job of managing their brand. You know, they they continue to appeal to people, not to you, Dave, but to other people as an innovative, exciting company that's sort of a small company atmosphere and they're still making good things happen. They've done such a fabulous job of managing their brand throughout all this. And uh, maybe that'll break down when these things are happening, because certainly oh. people are upset about the App Store rules. But you know what? They've been, you know, they've been doing this for a long time. So we'll see how that plays out. I think all this sort of highlights the fundamental problem is that antitrust law doesn't account for a lot of these forces and scenarios in tech. Right. You know, a great for point. example, there's the idea that the free market can vote with its dollars, but developers are a vanishingly small part of Apple's constituency. And the users of Apple phones can be perfectly happy well, the developers are all in complete riot, right? There's nothing the right. developers can do. So it's, again, there's so many winner-take-all scenarios in, in these tech companies that I think realistically what has to happen is there has to be sort of an early 20th century style rethink of a lot of these competition rules because trying to shoehorn current competition law into something that you can go after Google with, I agree with you. I don't, I'm not sure it's going to work. I think realistically... The companies, these companies are going to continue to operate the same way they, they have been with impunity. 
But longer term, we need to really, I think, as a country, think very policy about whether we want to maintain a healthy environment of competition or whether we just want to have five companies sell us everything. I only shop at Amazon, so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so one company sells everything. It's even better. Well, guys, I think our time is about up here, and we could go on forever. This has been a tremendous discussion, and I'm just amazed at uh, how smart you guys are, and uh, you've got some great insight. I think our listeners here should be uh, are treated to um, really news you can use and really great framing of issues that are pretty complex issues, but you, you framed it in a way that I think everyone can understand. Certainly made it easier for me. Really thank you for your time. And we'll keep Bailey and Baggett together, and we'll do this again another another juncture. Thanks, Jim. Bye-bye. Thanks, George. Bye. Bye.